You are listening to the Critical Mass Radio Show, Orange County's business talk show focused on exploring topics of interest to CEOs who are leading middle market companies with your host, Richard Franzi. Welcome to this edition of Critical Mass Radio Show and Podcast. I am your host, Richard Franzi, and this is podcast episode number 1,273. This is our 1,586th interview. We've been on the air since March of 2009, and we're the longest-running business podcast in Orange County, California. Individuals, corporations, governments, and other institutions face unprecedented vulnerabilities in a world where everything is increasingly connected. Brian Cunningham, Executive Director for the UCI Cybersecurity and Policy Institute, is going to be on the show today to discuss the current challenges companies are facing in the world of cybersecurity. If you'd like to learn more about this radio show podcast or the CEO peer groups that I lead, visit my website, criticalmass4business.com. It gives me great pleasure to welcome back to the show, Brian Cunningham. Brian, welcome back. Thank you, Rick. Thanks for having me on Super Tuesday. That's right. What a momentous day it is out there. We're going to be talking about election security here a little bit later on the interview. But before we do that, share to my audience the background and what is the UCI Cybersecurity and Policy Institute. We have two what I call meta goals. The first one is to find multidisciplinary solutions to the toughest problems in cybersecurity, which in turn, I would argue, are some of the toughest problems in our economic security and our national security. And then secondly, through those solutions, helping to continue the trend to make Orange County the premier cybersecurity ecosystem in the United States. And I think since I was on last time, we've collectively, not just our institute, but all the companies here have made a lot of progress towards that goal. Mm-hmm. So cybersecurity, this is, when you got together, one of the things you talked about is this is a unique institute in that it's interdisciplinary. And maybe you could share a little bit about the thinking behind that. Yes, we believe that we are one of, if not the premier multidisciplinary cyber institutes in the United States. There are lots of really good institutes, okay, and centers, but they tend to be pretty single discipline. So some of them are highly technical. They're all uh, computer scientists and engineers. Some of them are more policy-based, tends to be lawyers, ex-government officials. We have a number of different entities at the university that are directly involved with us and supporting us. Uh, Most importantly, the uh, ICS, the Computer Science School, but also the Engineering School and the Law School. And then we have a participants group of, I think it's now over 400 corporate leaders, uh, law enforcement, privacy and civil liberties organizations. And so we deliberately look for problems to work on that can only be solved with those number of disciplines. So mm-hmm. I can give you just a couple examples. Please. And These three projects, which are sort of our marquee projects that we're working on right now, all are sponsored by the Herman P. and Sophia Taubman Foundation. So thanks to them. First one is more technically computer science-based. We're building an Internet of Things test range on our campus. So it's literally a laboratory where we will be able to simulate almost any kind of attack uh, that you can think of. Mm. So we can pretend we're Russians, we can pretend we're Iranians, we can pretend we're North Koreans, we can be unknown to the receivers of the attack, we can do ransomware, we can do any kind of attack. And then we're going to work our way through different types of Internet of Things devices to try to find vulnerabilities and then solutions. So we're actually starting with the medical devices, mm. particularly implantable medical devices. Right. Which is a 
big part of the Orange County ecosystem, exactly. medical devices. Yeah, exactly. And we're actually exploring working with uh, UCSD on this as well, because they have a fairly large program of medical device testing, but historically it's been primarily around efficacy and mm. patient safety as opposed right. to cybersecurity. So it could be actually a nice partnership between our two campuses. So that's sure. thing one. Thing two is we're doing a lot of work on trying to develop regulations. We did some work under under the California Consumer Privacy Act, which passed last, two years ago. The Attorney General's Office wrote the regulations for them last year. And then this year, our real focus is on helping to write draft regulations around this new IoT, again, Internet of Things security law that also passed in California. No one's paid much attention to it because the CCPA was the 800-pound gorilla. Right. But it actually requires every single device, very broadly defined, that's sold in the state of California to have, quote-unquote, reasonable cybersecurity. Wow. And it's the first law of its kind, as we often are in California. Yes, right. And it, it actually has uh, some definitions of what reasonability is, but the whole law itself is... 2,000 words as opposed to CCPA, which is 100 times that. So a lot of how the law will be implemented is going to depend on these regulations. Mm -hmm. So we have a great, uh, my co-principal investigator on that as a former federal communications commission technologist in residence. So we're working on that. That's the second project. And then the third uh, with the law school is we're looking at the role of cyber insurance companies as de facto regulators. So hmm. You're probably aware, your listeners probably aware, that in the United States, unlike in Europe, we don't have any overarching privacy or cybersecurity laws. They're very much by sector. So healthcare is very heavy, heavily regulated, financial right. sector, but there's no general cybersecurity law for businesses. And so what's starting to happen is the insurance companies are defining what is the standard of security by the way they sell their policies, the way they charge for their policies, the way they decide whether or not to provide coverage. So there's a law professor at UCI who's done a lot of work on this, and we've already interviewed more than 100 people, and probably will wind up publishing a book on the role of cybersecurity insurance companies. Is it a good idea? Is it not a good idea? How should they be developing their policies? How should they be pricing them? Because it really is kind of the wild, wild west out there. Sure. Yeah, and they have a vested interest in it, so uh, yes. it would be good to have maybe some outside regulation. But I don't mean to uh, be up on a soapbox or anything. We're talking with Brian Cunningham, and you're the executive director. That's correct. That's I'm a... the founding executive director. Ooh, I missed that part. <laughs> uh, let's make sure we get that in the future. Yeah, we're three and a half years old now. You're right. Yeah. and uh, Toddlers. And I saw on LinkedIn that you're now uh, aligned with a, with a law practice, too. So Yes. I, I like to think of myself as Al Pacino in The Godfather Part 3. I keep trying to get out, and they keep pulling me back in. Yes. I keep trying to retire from law, and I keep being unsuccessful. Well, congratulations on that. So you presented recently an assessment of the tensions between the U.S. and Iran. And, and, and before, when I've heard you speak, you... You do a very good job, and maybe you can reprise that role here on Critical Mass Radio Show, about helping us to understand how cyber warfare could lead to actual warfare of a different type of in-person warfare. So, But maybe you can share with us why you believe Iran will almost certainly launch more cyber attacks against the U.S. And then in a general sense, right. what are you seeing as far as how can that agitate, not just with Iran, but other state actors maybe exactly. into something that's 
you know, more catastrophic. In some yeah, sense. I would take it another step. I wouldn't say I believe they will launch more cyber attacks. I believe they've never stopped. Okay. I believe this cyber cold war, sometimes hot war, with Iran and the United States has been going on for at least 10 years. And a lot of people mistakenly believe that this started with the targeted killing of the Iranian Quds Force Commander General Soleimani. In fact, there have been many, many incidents back and forth, all the way back to the hostage crisis in 1979, but in cyberspace, all the way back to 2010, 2011, they've infiltrated our power grids. They've put malware in all kinds of business systems. They hacked a giant casino in, uh, in, in Las Vegas. And I don't believe they've actually stopped. One of the things that makes the understanding and the conduct of warfare in cyberspace completely different than anything in the past and so difficult though is it's very difficult to know who your attacker is Mm -hmm. unless they want you to know so the russians for example sometimes they want us to know it was them so they'll put kind of little calling cards little code little trade craft in there that that they know we know is them and sometimes the iranians will do the same thing but a lot of times we don't know for sure who it is what really concerns me is that because there are no rules in cyberspace for warfare that are commonly understood or agreed to, we could have a situation where, taken North Korea, they launch a cyber attack at us or at one of our companies like they did Sony in 2014, and they believe that their attack is below the threshold that should lead to a real war, a kinetic war, bombs, missiles, troops. We have a different threshold, and then we're now all of a sudden you're in a hot war because everyone miscalculated. Right. And it's interesting to me that uh, Iran is so aggressive in this way. From what you have observed, why is this such... Is it just the United States with them, or are they a bad actor in other democracies around the world? They have understood longer than many other company countries that cybersecurity is a great tool for asymmetric warfare. They know they could never significantly damage the United States with their military without us literally destroying their entire military. So does North Korea. To some extent, so does Russia. And so what they've realized is that they can get a lot of bang for their buck by using these relatively cheap tools of cyber attack. And it's not just against us. They attacked very famously or infamously Saudi Aramco. Mm -hmm. They have done all kinds of propaganda and other operations against anyone they perceive as their enemies, Israel, for example. And I should say, it's not that they're the only ones. It's not, it's Russia, it's Iran, it's China. Very famously, the United States and Israel are alleged to have created the Stuxnet virus to slow down the Iranian nuclear Uh, power efforts. So to some extent, to where you stand on this depends on where you sit. And the other big problem is there's, in many countries, particularly China and Russia, a, a great deal of gray area and murkiness about when the government is operating and when hackers Mm -hmm. being protected by the government are operating. And there are literally groups of hackers who punch the card all day long for the Chinese government then they go home and they go steal from everyone. I mean, they're, 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 they're literally <laughs> hackers yeah. for hire. They're right. like privateers right. in, the, in the pirate days. Jesus. All right, Brian. You talked about it, the World Affairs Council, not look on cybersecurity threats for the 2020 election. Sorry I missed that talk, but could you give an outlook for our audience, the CEOs and business owners? Because we're, as you said, this is Super <laughs> Tuesday, baby. So Yeah, very appropriate as we're recording this on Super Tuesday. 
Look, uh, our institute held a, uh, almost a full-day conference on this in 2017, which if your viewers and listeners want to go to C-SPAN, they can find three different panels plus a keynote addressed by James Carville mm-hmm. on this topic. And I think the conclusions that we would reach at the Institute today are basically what they were in 2017, which are the chance of a, a bad actor, a Russia, China, Iran, actually being able to electronically change enough votes to change the outcome of an American election, that risk is very low, primarily because of what my daughters would call the Battlestar Galactica defense. Our infrastructure is so old and unconnected that it would be difficult for any adversary to get into enough. Voting machines are very easy to hack. Our institute's done it. BlackBerry Silence here has done it. But they have to be hacked individually. So you'd have to literally, if you're Russia and you want to change the outcome of the presidential election through hacking, and I'll get back to that in a second, you would have to put Russian agents in polling places where the outcome of the election would be decided, and they would have to individually hack those machines. Even the KGB, I'm sorry, I'm a cold warrior, I still call them the KGB. Even the KGB is not smart enough to figure out where to put all those people in advance and they get caught. Where where the real danger is in 2020, as it was in 2016, is the massive propaganda and disinformation, Mm -hmm. uh, which doesn't involve literally changing votes, but involves changing votes by changing people's minds. Right. And I will make a prediction here that the 2020 election season will see the first deep fake political ad attack. So for your listeners who don't know what that is, a deep fake is where you create usually a video that goes up on the internet of, of a person saying things that they never actually said. It's completely manufactured. There's a very spooky one that somebody did just as an example of President Obama. Yes, I saw that one. Yeah, and just circling back for a second to combine this with the concept of cyber warfare, if people don't think that this is a serious risk, they should look at the uh, issue of the economic embargo of Qatar, the country of Qatar. The country of Qatar was put under an economic embargo by its fellow uh, Gulf state nations because the emir of the government of Qatar went on state television and said some things that were very offensive to Sunni Muslims, except he never actually did it. That was a deep fake attack. Oh, my God. They hacked into the Qatari television system. They got all the footage. They mixed it together. Then they took over the TV system through hacking, and they broadcast it. Well, an economic blockade, which is still going on, by the way, is one step away from a military blockade, which is one step away from a shooting war. Mm -hmm. Now, in this case, uh, it turns out that after some misattribution, the FBI finally determined that these were Russian hackers in Russia who did it, but it wasn't the Russian government. It was the Saudi government and some of the other Gulf governments who hired these hackers to do it. Now, because the military power disparity between Russia and Qatar is so huge, there was no real chance they would have gone to real war. But imagine if that had been Iran and Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. or the United States and Russia, or North and South Korea. Very dangerous. Wow, this is... Uh, <clears throat> it's always great to have you on the show in one way, and always here. unnerving in another. <laughs> the other thing, and I wish we had more time today, is the idea that they, these are state actors, and many times they're looking at, at, least here in the United States, coming after companies. So you have state actors attacking companies and what is the role of our 
government to either help or defend those companies that are domiciled here in the United States? Yeah, it's a great question. You've probably heard me say this before, but we're in a situation now that I think you have to go all the way back, as I was saying a minute ago, to the privateer and pirate days and the kind of frontier days to replicate, in which most of the critical infrastructure assets of the country that our adversaries want to attack are owned by the private sector, not by the government. Also, the military targets are quite well hardened. Right. Not that it can't they can't be broken into. I my top secret security files in China thanks to the OPM hack, but they're much harder to get into. So, for example, North Korea attacks Sony. Well, they're attacking Sony like Sony was in a government, but Sony's not a government. They don't have an army, they don't have a navy, they don't have an air force. And the laws in the United States right now are so strict, principally the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, that is so limiting on what companies are allowed to do to defend themselves that they really can't effectively defend themselves. And on top of that, you have the problem that our government is either unable or more likely unwilling right. to defend the private companies. And part of the reason is many of the companies don't want it. They don't want the government in their systems. And then you have the privacy and civil liberties lobby that's very heavily against any U.S. intelligence or military presence in private networks. So it's a very dangerous time. And I'll, I'll make another prediction that within five years, the law in the United States is going to become much more lenient on companies so that they can defend themselves more. So let's talk about laws. You, you mentioned before the California privacy, and now we have the IoT laws. For, for, you know, we have a business audience here, largely in Southern California, but in California, can can you help to kind of explain the intent of this legislation, these laws, and sort of the impact on business owners and CEOs? Right. Well, as you know, California is almost always the pioneer for laws like this in right. the United States. We passed the first. Uh, breach disclosure law all the way back in 2005. Now all 50 states have one. The two laws that we're talking about, one is the California Consumer Privacy Act, and that has been frequently but somewhat inaccurately compared to the general data protection regulation in Europe. It does attempt to create a whole infrastructure of requirements over things like forcing companies to allow you to consent for them to use your data or not consent for them to use your data, your rights to get access to what they have about you to prevent them from selling it to third parties. So it is really more of what I would call a pure privacy law. There's not very much cybersecurity in that law. The IoT law, on the other hand, is purely a cybersecurity law. And the terms of that law are very few very few words in that law, so a lot of it's going to have to be fleshed out in regulations, but basically it says every device that gets connected to the internet, very broadly defined, that's sold in California, doesn't have to be manufactured in California, right. sold in California, has to have reasonable security. And the only example they give of sort of a safe harbor, if you will, is if you have a device that you sell in California, it has to have either a password, complicated password, you know, letters, numbers, symbols, that's hard-coded into every single device. So if they sell a million of them, everyone has to have a unique mm. password that can't be changed. Or it has to be engineered in a way that it forces the consumer, as soon as they want to use the device, to create their own complicated password. Because... That's one of the biggest vulnerabilities in devices is they ship with the – either they don't have a password or right. they ship with the password as password. Right. But what's so 
interesting to us geeks in cybersecurity law about this regulation, about this law, is that's really all it says. And so in, in working on the regulations, California Attorney General's office is going to have to figure out, is, is that all we mean by security, or are there other things, and you know what, what are the how good do the passwords have to be? So there's a lot of work to be done on that, but at, at least it's a start, and we're, again, the first state that has that. Well, and with the the promise of IoT and the and the proliferation of devices that are smart. I mean, this is a this is a yin and a yang. You know, you want yeah. you want all that capability, but yet then you need to protect yourself. And that's the the devil's in the details, isn't yeah. it? Figuring out how every manufacturer is going to comply. Yeah. Well, I always say that Americans are rushing to give up our privacy, our private data. If we, if we can get a Starbucks coffee for ten cents less, not to pick on Starbucks, <laughs> we'll give away our private data, right? And and one of the things that we found with these uh, home IoT devices is people would literally rather risk their security than have to go through two more steps of creating a complicated password. So. California, I guess in sort of a paternalistic way, is trying to get companies to force the consumers to do what is already in their own interest to do. Right. Wow. Okay. I know you have regular events at the Institute. I'm wondering if you could highlight for our audience maybe an upcoming event or something we should know about. Yeah, we have some very exciting things coming up this spring. Our, Our sort of marquee event of the spring is a very immersive cybersecurity war game. So we're going to hold it at the Don Beale Applied Innovation Center at the Cove, where they have a brand new facility with state-of-the-art video. And so we'll have C-suite level executives in a room together, and we will play a war game with them, including fake social media, fake videos up on the screen, fake news interviews. I have a few surprises I'm not going to disclose for the participants. And because what we found is the more it feels like you're in the real situation in the room, the more realistic the lessons that you learn from it are. And I'm very happy to say that uh, President Obama's Secretary of Homeland Security and former Department of Defense General Counsel Jay Johnson is Mm. going to be our keynote speaker. And any individual companies are able to sign up uh, and we don't have it up on our website yet but we soon will at cpri.uci.edu and when is that again it's may 19th and it'll probably be between nine and four o'clock what's the goal of that the goal is primarily to raise awareness among business leaders of the kind of things that can go wrong when you're in a cybersecurity crisis if you don't have a plan for how you're going to deal with it And the other goal of it for us, of course, is research, to find out areas. Because, you know, Orange County businesses, by and large, are pretty sophisticated. And so they'll they'll do well. Like the big companies in Orange County will do well. But they won't be perfect ever. No plan. There, you know, there's a saying in warfare that no battle plan survives the first shot, mm-hmm. right? So part of what we're trying to do is figure out where those seams are. Where what are the most likely things you're going to miss, even if you have a really good plan? Then the other thing that's great about this project, and by the way, thanks to IBM and Newmeyer and Dillian for sponsoring that. But the other thing that's going to be great about this project is, even before that, probably the last week of April, we're going to have a separate event for not C-suite level individuals, but the actual cybersecurity officers and operators, people at the keyboards of the companies that will two weeks later participate in the C-suite event. And that is going to be very technically sophisticated. So we're going to have it at the eSports Arena at UCI. For those of you who haven't been there, it's an e-gaming facility with, I think, 80 stations. They have all the, you know, super cool souped-up chairs and sound effects and everything. I sound like an old man there, which I guess I am. (laughs) Uh, 
And, and so these, these guys will actually, and ladies, will actually sit there all day and have to fend off an attack. Then that will be two weeks earlier. So at the end of the day, we'll be able to take the lessons learned and the mistakes they made and the things they did right and feed that into the scenario that their bosses are wow. going to be looking at two weeks later. I think that's the human aspect of that. How people respond to the event is so crucial to actually see and because you can't predict that necessarily Absolutely. i mean you could try to but until the heat of the battle that's going to be Absolutely. awesome i've run many of these things not as sophisticated as this one and the the people are always surprised one other thing i just want to mention because i think it's really important is we're also sponsoring our institute is sponsoring a whole series of events around women in cybersecurity. So the first one's going to be on April 16th and we have a great keynote speaker shabnan jalakian from first American Financial. I believe she's the highest-ranked cybersecurity female in the United States, or, or tied for the highest rank. And we're going to have lots of lots of tips and lots of encouragement and lots of ways for young women to make connections to get into cybersecurity. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah, we're very excited about that. So if someone wants to learn more about the Institute, how do they find you online, Brian Cunningham? So we actually have a pretty robust uh, newsletter, perhaps not mm. as robust as yours. But if you go to info, if you email info at cpri.uci.edu, we'll put you on the mailing list. Also, there's a lot of information about our institute just at that website, cpri.uci.edu, and come to our events. Yeah, I, I, uh, I would really like to help publicize the April 16th and the May 19th event. And so I'm so glad your schedule permitted you to come in for a little bit and give us an update, yeah, my friend. Yeah, I always like to come. Yeah, have me back, if yeah, you will. Of course. Whenever you're in town and available, we'd love to have you back. Thank you to our engineer, Paul Roberts, for doing a great job on the show. And our three producers, without whom I could not do the show every week, Joan Park, Crystal Nunley, and Vanessa Holland, who's right here behind the camera. If you want to connect with me, I'd say let's start on LinkedIn. I'm Richard Franzi, F-R-A-N-Z-I. And until our next show, I hope all of your business decisions will move your company in a positive direction. You have been listening to Critical Mass Radio Show Business Talk Show focused on exploring topics of interest to CEOs who are leading middle market companies with your host, Richard Franzi.